The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Thank you, guys. Uh, it's a joy to be with you this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, uh, we are in... Sorry, this is going to weird me out. We're not, I'm not centered. <laughs> if, we, if you have a Bible, we're in Psalm 57. If you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, the Psalms are right in the middle of the... Um, in the Bible, uh, a little bit to the left. There's 150 of them. There's a lot of them. And in the summertime, we go through uh, a psalm a week during the summer months, and we find ourselves in Psalm 57 this morning. So here's what I'm going to do. Um, sorry, I've got a bit of a dry throat this morning. Uh, um, psalm 57. I'm going to read for us from Psalm 57. And then we're going to get looking at it. Um, Psalm 57, to the choir master, according to the provision, do not destroy. In the time of David, when he fled from Saul and he was in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storm of destruction passes by. I cry out to God most high, to God whom fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing your praises among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we understand this psalm together. Father, as we consider this psalm of desperation and prayer and praise, I ask that you would, by your Spirit, spark in us this joy of singing amidst the problems of life, that we would be renewed by your presence among us. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, This psalm, um, very obviously, is about singing. (laughs) That's what we're. That's the name of our. That's the the title of the sermon. That's why I get paid the big bucks. Why do we sing? <laughs> but the psalm, um, it's a double whammy, right? It's a song about singing in a book meant for singing. So it's kind of like the extra extra exclamation point at the end of a of a sentence, like sing. You know, some of you like to use a lot of exclamation points. I've ever used more than three. Then it's a. I'm probably like you know, I'm taking some sort of cough syrup or something like that. I'm not. <laughs> in my right mind. But you see there in verse 7, my heart is steadfast, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. Right? He's got the sound team going. Come on, sound guys. Everybody get your musical instruments out. We're going to get going and singing. This song is about singing. Um, and it's important to note, as we kind of look at this question, why do we sing? Not a lot of, not all religions sing in their worship services. Um, some religions will have a cantor, so somebody who's a professional vocalist 
they will get up and sing a verse or a section of their scriptures in the worship context. Even some um, religious traditions, they don't have any singing at all. It's just prayers in the context, and then it's a lecture. And there's no music, no singing at all. So then when we come to the Psalms, and it says, sing... And not only that, but right, you'll notice that he ends there. I will sing with God's people, right? I'm going to sing among the nations. I'm going to sing of you with other people. It forces us to ask this question, why is singing so important to us? Why is it so central to our Christian worship service? Well, before we get into it, kind of as a way of kind of illuminating that question, I don't know if you've ever visited another family and you're kind of like, I thought my family did things one way and everybody did it like this. And then you go and visit somebody in their house and they do in our house. We can all think that, for example, that Christians have always sung for all time and eternity in their worship services. And so what I want to do, as we kind of get as, a, as an illustration of why this psalm is so important, is kind of do a little bit of a history on singing in the Christian worship services through church history. So I know some of you are kind of like, I didn't come to church for a history lesson. Well, buckle up. Um, so history is singing. We, singing, we, get, we have about 2,000 years of church history now. Um, not including all the time before Jesus. But in the history of the church, we can all kind of look back and think about like the early, early Christians, right? The book of Acts and all those guys. And we have in those books um, evidence, obvious evidence of them singing, right? Acts 2, they were worshiping and singing and the Holy Spirit came down upon them, right? You've got songs actually in the Pauline letters, like so Colossians 1, you know, he's the image of God, the, the firstborn of all creation. That's a hymn, like that's an early church hymn. Yeah, Psalm, uh, Philippians 2, where it talks about uh, Jesus giving up his life and then being raised up to God's throne. That's an early church hymn. But outside of that, what do we get to see about how the early church worshiped God? Well, um, there's this whole category of church historians, um, uh, lit- liturgists, um, who just study liturgies, church worship services, through all church history. And they look back in the early church, and they, there's a clear evidence from St. Jerome and all these other guys there was a vast diversity of what worship looked like in the early church. Some people, you know, they did worship services in different styles, different times of day, different days of the week. They all worshiped in vastly different ways. There wasn't one uniform, like, everybody did worship service like this. Not only that, but they were known for worshiping. Here, um, evidence of, uh, let's see, I have Pliny. Could you imagine having this name? Pliny the Younger. Anybody want to name their children Pliny? But Pliny the Younger to Emperor Trojan in AD around 110 or 111 and 112 mentions that Christians were known to assemble at a set day before dawn and sing hymns to the Christ as a God, right? Around, so basically after about 80 years of the church existing, they were already known amongst their their non-Christian friends. Hey, they get up early in the morning before dawn. You guys think 10 o'clock's early. Could you imagine getting up at four o'clock in the morning? Sunrise is around five o'clock right now, 530. You guys want to do church at four in the morning? We could, we could do it at that time. <laughs> I'm not sure if he is exciting, but they get up and they're known for singing to songs to Christ their God. And then um, the, there is an early church book uh, of hymns called the Odes of Solomon, right? There's this Odes of Solomon book, and you, here's, a, here's a few lines from the types of hymns they would sing. Then I was crowned by my God, and my crown was living, and I was justified by my Lord, for my salvation is incorruptible. I have been freed from vanities and not condemned. My chains were cut off by his hands. I received the face and likeness of a new person. I walked in him as I was saved. That sounds very familiar. 
I mean, it's a little old, different type of cultural expression, but that sounds like, for example, death was arrested when we sing that song. You know, my chains were freed. I was resurrected with my king. So we have that happening all kind of in the first 300 years of the church history. Then we come to the 300s, later half of the 300s, and this is where things are going to change. 365, there's a council called the Council of Laodicea. And at the Council of Laodicea, they were dealing with major issues of false teaching happening in the early church. People teaching like Jesus wasn't the eternal son of God, really important things like that. They were really getting whacked out. And they were doing it by, you guys think that like commercial jingles are like a new thing. They were teaching heresy through commercial jingles, right? They were teaching these little songs. They were teaching people false doctrine. So Council of Laodicea in 365, they made this command. No others shall sing in the church, save only the canonical singers who go up to the ambo, the pulpit, and sing from a book. All right? I know that maybe sounds a little kind of weird, but basically what happened in 365, that we're going to get rid of all these heresies teaching people uh, stuff through songs. Well, we're just not going to have any more singing in the church unless you're a pastor or a priest. So from around 400 on the church congregation did not sing in the worship services. Can you imagine that? Like, we think of this, like, we think of, like, singing songs in this context as, like, so essential to who we are and how we sing and what it means to go to a Christian worship service. So from about professional guys like me or, you know, our illustrative Matt over here or Aaron who get up and they, they, they sing a song. The rest of us just listen. Not only that, but they sing a song in Latin. Right? Imagine if, you know, we're here we are in the foothills of Scotland or something like that, and you're like, I don't know what any of this Latin stuff is, and they're just singing on about something in Latin. I have no idea what they're doing it. And they don't do it for just like, let's just try this out one time. They do it for a thousand years. A thousand years of church history, there is no congregational singing. So the songs that do get written during the medieval period, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas uh, wrote some songs. You know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he's a super ultra smart guy. He wrote a couple songs. Um, St. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. We sing that song in our worship services. But those are all written for monks to sing and in private worship. In the congregational setting, there was no singing. Then we come up close to, not quite at the Reformation, and there's a guy named John Huss. Some of you guys might be familiar with John Huss. He was about 100 years before Martin Luther, and he was a radical. You want to know why he was a radical? He had three main ideas. Here's the three main ideas. Preaching should be in the language of the people. So you should preach the Bible in whatever the people speak, that language, right? Not only that, um, all the people should get communion, right? Not just the priest, because they're super holy, but everybody should get communion. And then the third thing that that was super radical, the congregation should sing, and he believed in that so much that they produced some of the the first hymn books, right? Some of us grew up in tradition where he had a hymn book. And you know what happened? 1415... At the Council of Constance, John Huss was charged with this charge. If if laymen are forbidden to preach and interpret the scripture, much more are they forbidden to publicly sing in church. What happened is that John Huss was burned at the stake for teaching those three things. You should preach in your language. (laughs) Everybody should get communion. The people of God should sing in the church. I mean... Could you imagine somebody walking in right now? Okay, Pastor Jacob, David, <laughs> Peter, off. We're going to go burn you down in you know, Central City, Manchester. <laughs> like, what we're doing right now is radical. It was only like 600 years ago. John Huss uh, was burned at the stake singing hymns of all things, right? And these are one of, here's one of his hymns. 
Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior, turn away, turned away God's wrath forever. By his bitter grief and woe, he saved us from our evil foe. Oh, so bad. That's what he was burned at the stake for. There's still hymns, uh, some of the oldest hymnals that we have are from around 1505, 15 years before Martin Luther and his 95 Theses. So this, all this happened 100 years before the Reformation. But then when the Reformation comes, the main thing that happens in, in Calvin and Luther, right? Some of us are very familiar, some of, some of you book people are very familiar with like the bondage of the will or Calvin's issues of Christian religion, right? Those are like high academic stuff from the time. At the time, most people would have been shocked that here in these reformed churches, right, Lutheran, uh, Calvin, all those, all those guys in Europe, they would walk into their service and they were singing hymns, right? One of the earliest documents that Martin Luther produced was a, like a book of, I think, about, about 30 hymns. One of them was, um, uh, what's that? we had it, our, Michelle and I had it, our, A Mighty Fortress, right? Someone was, A Mighty Fortress, is gone. That was one of the first hymns he wrote. Big, important hymn. Actually, Germans are credited with around, the German Reformed folks uh, are credited with writing about 100,000 hymns during this time period. Can you imagine that? They wrote, they were so enamored with the gospel and so liberated to sing in the congregation of God's people that they wrote about 100,000 hymns, right? The Reformation was really more spurred and spread with singing, Right? It was really more about people suddenly being able to, in God's, within God's people, as a church, doing what we're doing right now, being able to say, God, you're so great. You're going to protect us. You're good. You've saved us. All these basic things it had not happened for a thousand years in the church. So Martin Luther, they wrote hymns. Calvin's kind of like, we haven't done this in a while, so let's just sing the Psalms. And you get these various traditions from there. But that is an illustration of just how radical singing is in the congregation of God's people. Why is it important that we sing? It's a natural response to seeing who God is. It's a critical response to in, uh, teaching our own souls the very truths of who we see about God. So we're not going to go through the rest of the uh, church history on that one. Um, but through the rest of, from then until now, I'm not sure what your guys' religious backgrounds are, but every time there's a renewal a revival within church history, a big one like the Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening or a small one like the revival in, um, of 16, uh, 1905 in Wales or something like that, there is a rejuvenation of singing in God's people. Every time there's renewal, every time there's revival, there's singing. God's people coming together and saying, God has been good to us. Despite all other pretenses, despite what we might have expected, God has been good to us. So, that is all by way of illustration of saying Psalm 57 captures this core idea of why singing is so critical and important for us as a church. Right? It's, it's not just that it's kind of like the religious thing to do, because not all religions do it. And it's not the sort of thing that we've always done. There's been about a thousand years of church history amidst two thousand years of the Christian church where we didn't sing as a congregation. This psalm brings us into this reality. We sing because it renews our souls in God. We sing because God has saved us and made us his own, and we sing as a way of sealing those truths in our hearts, and those truths explode our hearts into singing. So here's the main point of this psalm, and then we're going to break it up into a few parts. We experience spiritual renewal by singing about our redeeming God. 
I think it's pretty obvious from the psalm. We experience spiritual renewal by singing about our redeeming God. So what we want to do is we just want to break this up into three parts. I'm going to talk about confessing our problems as a part of the essential part of what does it mean to sing. Why do we sing? We sing to experience spiritual renewal. So the songs we sing should be marked by certain types of things. So the first thing we're going to look at, verses 1, 4, and 6, confessing our problems. You see this pretty obviously in the psalm, right? Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Dropping down to verse 4, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down in fiery beasts, the children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. And then dropping down to have in these three verses, clear, just the obvious reading of this is just, David's got problems, and he's singing about them to God. He's saying, God, I've got all these problems going on. I need you to do something. But it's not just general problems, right? You'll notice here, he starts out, verse 1, and I think this is important for us to get. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. Right? He doesn't start out by saying, God, look at those guys and how bad they are. He starts out by saying, God, I don't deserve your help. But if I'm going to get any help from you, it's got to start with knowing I need mercy too. I need your kindness. I don't deserve it. I don't have the clout to be able to demand you to do something for me, God. I need you to do it, and you've promised to do it for people that don't deserve it, so that's called mercy, and I need it. So God, internally, I know I'm no different than these guys. That's why, I mean, that's essential to what it means to be a Christian. Romans 3, 24 to 25, right, 23 to 24 For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Anybody who's in this room taking Jesus seriously or exploring Jesus, the main idea of being in Christ is we've all done screwed up. (laughs) And we need God's help. That's why we sing about mercy. And he also sings about the problems going on around him, right? You'll notice that he talks about, look, these people are coming after me. God, I don't understand all the problems that they're causing for me. They're using their words to twist around me. And verse 6, there's honestly, um, I'm sorry, verse 4, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. My suspicion here, fiery beasts, so in the Old Testament, the the image of fire was often associated with... um, angelic presence and beast is often associated with evil. I think the illusion here is that there's not only, you know, people who are against him, but there's some sort of demonic opposition to him. There's something going on where it's like people are acting like lions. And then I got all these unseen kind of fiery realities going on around me that just do not make any sense. And he sings about them. And you, you think about, um, the, I don't have it in my notes, so I'm going to go off the top of my head. Remember, um, A Mighty Fortress, uh, the, the hymn has right, um, song, ta- something about those evil forces. <laughs> See, now I'm, I'm butchering it, so I just stick to my notes. The main point here is that we confess our problems and just say, God, I don't have it all together. And we don't celebrate how great we are. We don't get up here on Sunday mornings and we don't sing um, cold plays, I will fix you, to each other. <laughs> You know, we don't, you try hard and you don't succeed. <laughs> I will fix you. No, we don't sing that to each other. We sing, God's going to fix me, but I've got the problems that he's got to fix. <laughs> right? We get together and we sing about how good God is, but we do come to him and say, we've got our own problems and God, you've got to fix them. So 
verse 2 and 3, not only are our songs marked by confessing our problems, our songs are marked by celebrating God's care for our problems. Verse 2 through 3, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. And just pay attention to the verbs and the action in this, in this verse. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. He will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. But you'll notice the activity of God because he's not even just kind of saying like, well, I hope God shows up and I guess we're just going to, I'm going to go pay my my bills and I'm going to try again tomorrow. No, no. God will fulfill. God will send. God will send out his faithfulness. He will do it. Why? Because God's name is on the line. He's promised it. He's promised if you've got problems and you're a sinner and you need help and you need mercy and compassion, I'm the guy to talk to. I'm the guy who responds with mercy and compassion and grace. So when we sing about it, we sing to celebrate God's care for our problems. This is similar to, uh, if you think right now, of your favorite foods. I don't know what your favorite foods are right now. I, I, sorry for all my vegetarian and vegan friends. I'm like craving a steak. I just, I want like a steak with a little bit of some steak salt on it, seared, both sides, medium rare. I can taste it right now. I'm not sure what your favorite food is. Whatever your favorite food is. You know, if it's moose tracks, ice cream in the fridge, whatever it is. Wherever your favorite food is right now, it has no taste. Wherever it is, it exists as it is. It doesn't have taste or flavor until you put it in your mouth. It's got flavor out there. It doesn't really exist. Flavor is something that happens when you put it in your mouth, when you taste it. You don't believe me? You're wrong. <laughs> you have to put something in your mouth in order for it to have flavor and taste, right? You know, a good, a good bottle of wine is just red liquid until you put it in a glass and drink it. It's that, that idea. It's similar to God's care for our problems. We know God cares. Intellectually, we know he cares. God, I know you care. That's good. It's something that's true in the fridge. When we put it to song and we sing it, we vocalize it, we put it in our mouths, and we, we have words come in our brain, we process the words, we think about them, and then we tell our mouths and our throat exhale words and sing them, there is a physical process here that puts that truth, so to speak, on the tongues of our souls. And we, in the mouths of our souls, we begin to say, God's true, and I'm making, I'm experiencing this truth right now. I'm singing it to myself. I'm being shaped by it. This is something that um, Daniel Leventon, he wrote a book called uh, Your Brain on Music, and I'm pulling this illustration from it because it is to capture this idea that singing together, not merely alone, singing changes our, our internal biological chemistry to embrace and experience the truth of what we're singing. It changes us, right? We can read a book that's different than singing the truth. When we sing, we are engaging our imaginations when we're singing these words, the songs we were singing before. You know, my sins, they are many. His mercy is more, right? There's incredible illustrations of that, but when we begin to sing that, we think about our last week. Which ways have I failed, God? Man, my, my sins, there's the last seven days. You can just kind of list them off. There's more mercy per each day than all the sins that I could have committed, I could have thought of, I could have even potentially have done but didn't do. There's an imagination engagement there 
that celebrates and changes how we think about God and experience it. And then, not only doing that individually, but then as you sit around the people that are in your small group or the people you know in the church, and you think, well, I, I know that guy's a sinner. No, I'm not. <laughs> you know what that person's experiencing. You know the hardships they're enduring. You know the, the difficulties they're walking through. And they're singing too. Maybe this stuff is not only true for me, but it's true for us. And we're celebrating who God is for us as a people. And we're engaging our souls and our bodies in a celebration of all that God is so that we know then together and we say, he will send from heaven and save me and us. He will put to shame him who tramples on me and us. He will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. I know it because we're singing it. That's what's going on in this psalm here where we say this, right? God cares for our problems and it's true. And we enforce it. We reinforce it and we train our own souls to embrace it when we sing it. There's something unique in singing it. Okay. Verse, uh, the final action of this psalm, and we'll, we'll, um, we'll close with this. We delight in God's global mission. Songs that are marked by confessing our own problems. Psalms that are marked by celebrating God's care for our problems, and then songs that are delighting in God's global mission. To pull this out, what I want to do is I want to pull on a phrase here, and we're going to step back and see where Psalm 57 stands in the whole of the Bible. Here in verse 1 of Psalm 57, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. And then here's the phrase I want to pull on. In the shadow of your wings, people who aren't religious in any sense, like if you didn't grow up in a religious household, you read the book, you read the Psalms, you're kind of like, okay, so you're telling me that God's not only invisible, but he's got a last Psalm, he had a bottle and a book, and now he's got wings, right? It's just weird. It's a weird book. What's going on with this phrase where it says, in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. Where is David getting that idea, getting that idea from? Because that idea shows up a few times in the Psalms and then very rarely through the rest of the Bible. It's a very specific verse, it's a specific reference that's pulling from very key ideas in the Bible. So he's pulling that, I think, from Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, if, you're, um, if you go read some of the you know, super scholarly stuff, Deuteronomy 32 is one of those critical passages in the Bible. Like You have like Genesis 1 and 2, you have Genesis 6 and 11, you've got 2 Samuel 7 where God makes a covenant with David, you've got Genesis 15 where he makes a covenant with Abraham. Deuteronomy 32 is one of the most critical passages in the Old Testament. It's called, by some people, the Deuteronomy worldview. It's basically how do they understand the entire world packed down into one place in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32. And of all things, what do we find? It's a song that Moses is singing. It's not only just any song. It is a song that Moses is singing about all that God has done to bring the the, the people of God out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. So it's a very specific song about a very important event. And what do we find in that psalm? Deuteronomy 32 I'm going to start up in verse 7, and we're going to read down to 11. I've got some of the verses up here. Remember the days of old. Consider the the years of of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. He's talking about the Tower of Babel distributes the people of God across the world. 
but the Lord portions, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the hollowing waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Now note here, like an, like an eagle who stirs up its nest that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No form. Taking the people of God out of Egypt into the promised land. And what's the image that he uses for them? An image of God hovering over them, caring for them, bringing them under his wings and leading them out of darkness into light. Out of the chaos of Egypt and all of this, all the atrocity of their enslavement into the freedom of his presence. I think there's even a further back reference that's going on here. It's not merely that this is just the first time that God shows up as an image of a dove, so to speak, hovering over God's people, hovering over God's intended created work. Finally, Genesis 1. Can we go here to Genesis 1, verse 2? The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep. And note this, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here we have the very beginning of creation. What do we find? God, the Holy Spirit, imaged as a dove hovering over the chaos and darkness of the waters. Right? You have to kind of, I know this is kind of like a big, this is a long line of thinking, but I'm trying to pull you guys into what David's processing here. Here we have at the very beginning, God hovering over the created darkness of the world, hovering over it with intended, redeeming, renewing, creating purposes to bring out of it what? The Garden of Eden and all that he intends to do with Adam and Eve. Then when Moses is singing about God, we are in darkness and you're leading us into light. What image does he use? This image of God hovering over his people with wings to bring them out of darkness into light, right? You're seeing the connection of chaos into order, darkness into light. And then here we have David in Psalm 57. And what is he in the midst of? Don't miss this, uh, the superscription to the psalm. I know we kind of skip over these because they're kind of like, well, who cares about the introduction? But this psalm was written at the very, it says, when David fled from Saul in the cave. David who is supposed to be king, was being pursued by the king of Israel and was hiding in a cave. You can imagine all of his relational uh, connections were absolute chaos. Everybody was against him. And here he was in the depths of a dark cave, pondering, God, how am I going to get out of this? And when he thinks, God, how am I going to get out of this? He thinks back to all the ways and where, where God shows up amidst the impossible and turns chaos into order, darkness into light. So he goes back all the way to creation. He goes all the way back to Moses and the, the major event of the Exodus. And he says, God, you've done it there. You've taken people out of darkness and brought them into light. You've taken chaos and turned it into order. My life is an absolute shambles. God, you've got to do something. You've got to show up. And what does he then say? Okay, God, I know. I know. I need your mercy. But God, I need you to show up. But when you do, you always do it in miraculous, powerful ways that only you can do it. So I'm just going to take shelter under the shadow of your wings. I'm going to take shadow. I'm going to take shelter under you. I'm going to pull out this image that you've given us. God, you always do impossible things amidst the impossible 
but you don't do it just for me. What was Genesis all about? We'll eventually get to preaching it about Genesis. Genesis is all about God creating a new people out of nothing. What is Exodus about that Moses was singing about? God creating a freed people out of an enslaved people. And you'll notice here in, 32, in Deuteronomy 32, he goes on to sing about the nations. So when David sings in Psalm 57, he says, God, you're going to do this for me, but you don't just do it for one-off people here or there. You do it for all of us. You do it for the nations. You do it for all peoples. And that's where we find Psalm 57 ending, right? Psalm 50, at the beginning, he says, in the shadow of your wings, I take refuge. And then you're going to do this for the rest of God, for the, for the people in the world. So then he says, verse, uh, verse 7, my heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will, ta- I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you among the peoples, not just ethnic Israel. I will sing praises to you among the nations. God, who had divided the nations up in Deuteronomy 32, will now bring them back into his fold. And Psalm 57 is what he's celebrating. God, you are going to do this. You're going to make a global family. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens. Be exalted over all the earth. And then what do we find happening in Acts chapter 2? And you notice what's happening in each one of those moments? Genesis 1, I know it doesn't look like it. It's a, it's a song. It's a poem. Deuteronomy 32. It's a song. Psalm 57. It's a song. Acts chapter 2. They're singing and worshiping, right? You notice every time God shows up and says, this is what I'm like. I'm a redeeming God. I love to bring broken, weary, sinful, horrible people all back into my family and make them new in Jesus. I like to do that from chaos into order. I like to do that from darkness into light. I like to do that from freedom into sla- from slavery into freedom. I like to do that with my people. Won't you be a part of my family? And we sing about that in our songs because that is the response of what it means to see this God. We see him. He is not just our God that we like to hear lectures from. Think good things about him. He's not just a God that we like to offer prayers to. Hope he hears him. He's a God that we engage. And when he engages with us, our hearts are broken open to sing. God, you're this type of God. I can't believe that this type of God would come and save me. We experience spiritual renewal by singing about our redeeming God. That's what we find here in Psalm 57. David, in the darkness of his cave, thinking, I don't deserve your grace. I need your mercy. I know you care for me. You've done it before. You've done before in saving your people and doing that for all people. So God, would you do that again for me? And would you do that again for all people? It's a part of why our church is actually one of the things that's not intended. We've never actually taught this or intentionally taught this. But when I hear from people, they're like, yeah, man, you guys got a lot of great singers in your church. It's like, well, you haven't heard them on their own. You know, it's not great that everybody sings great. It's just that everybody sings loud. For New England, that's kind of unique. Sing loud. Right? I've, I've never taught that. I've never been like, you guys got to pick up the volume, volume 11 here, please. We don't teach that. We just hold on in, a, in this incredible God in front of us. And people's response is to sing loud. That's why we had the testimony this afternoon. I want to start doing more of those because we want to hear about what God's doing to save us out of all the things that we don't deserve to be saved from and then do something new among us. 
it should stir us just to sing more loudly and more passionately about what God's doing. Not because, oh, well, he's going to do that for me too. I hope he does. But can you believe that he's done this for our sister? Like, what an incredible thing that God's done for us. We respond to this renewing work of God each week. We need it. Each each week, we need to be reminded, God, would you please be at work among us again? We're in incredible need of your grace. We, We still need your work among us. We still need to be renewed. Each week, we need to see this God. And each week, that's why we sing. So we sing three songs at the front, three songs, two songs at the back, because we want to experience the spiritual renewal of experiencing our, new, our renewing God. Not only here on the east side of Manchester, Lord willing, west side-ish of Manchester, and God willing as we can, send missionaries to other places to join what God's doing to redeem and renew people there, where we can then join in a global song with other people about our God's renewing work among us. Cool? Let's pray. Father, as we've looked at this song and considered what you're doing among us, God, I pray that you would help us to sing not for our own enjoyment of you, but for the enjoyment of our neighbors to know you and for the nations to know you. And will we experience spiritual renewal as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.